Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Che Huang, co-founder and CEO of Boxed.com. Che, thank you for joining us today. Um, you are in the midst of this pandemic, a very important player. And so, but your background is, is really impressive. So it's not just boxed. To get to this point and to be, you know, how successful you are today, it's taken a lot of time and experience. So take us back. Talk to us about your entrepreneurial journey. So uh, um, I don't know how far you want to go back, Jim, but I'll, I'll probably start right around, um, right around after college. How about that? Uh, and so, you know, I was like, how far should I take it back? Jeez, if we go all the way back to like middle school, it's going to be a long webinar. Um, but after college, um, I graduated, um, and went to Japan to teach English. Um, uh, so, uh, I, you know, my parents thought I was ruining my life. Like, what are you doing? Just everyone else has become an investment banker, doctor, lawyer, whatever's, um, here I am going to the countryside in Japan to teach English. And so ended up playing like duck, duck, goose with like Japanese kids for like two years of my life and really thought, you know, maybe I did kind of waste a few years of my life there. I traveled a lot, met a lot of great people. Um, but you know, what did I really get out of it? So, um, came back for law school, um, which I enjoyed, um, and graduated on, uh, or graduated and started my career at a law firm in Times Square on September 15, 2008. And I know the general kind of background or at least the rough demographics of the folks uh, on the call. Um, that probably doesn't mean much to you guys. Um, but for other folks on the call, they'll know that on September 14th, 2008, at about 11 p.m., Lehman Brothers filed the largest bankruptcy ever <laughs> up until that point um, uh, and thus really sparked the Great Recession of 08 and 09. And so I was starting my professional career on that day. Luckily, um, uh, well, I still remember coming out of the subway with a new suit, new shoes, new briefcase, and just thousands of people streaming out of Lehman Brothers because uh, our building was very close to theirs um, uh, without a job that morning. I was like, man, I sure know how to time this. Um, but stayed on for a few years at the law firm. A few folks uh, from high school, uh, uh, ironically high school and middle school, reached out and they had bought this thing called the iPhone uh, back then. And they thought it was going to be big. And they asked me to go along this ride with them to build games for the iPhone. Um, so we did do that. I quit my job cold turkey, did do that, um, had a successful game, but couldn't raise money. And uh, it was, this is how the story all comes about, um, the, or, or comes full circle. Uh, couldn't raise money, even though we had a rather successful game. Um, but um, uh, what we found was one of the uh, largest gaming companies in Japan requested a meeting with us because their CEO was in town. So we couldn't raise money. We didn't know what to do. Uh, so we went into this meeting, just a few country bumpkins, you know, um, uh, from Jersey. And then um, the meeting didn't start off that well. Uh, but actually, I was like, you know what? I'll go for it. I'll shoot my shot. And I said, you know what? I speak a little Japanese. I went and lived in Japan before. And they said, oh, really? Uh, the CEO there uh, said, oh, really? Where? And I was like, oh, and I, I lived in the countryside. So I was rather embarrassed to say. And then I told her the place where I lived. And it ended up that she was one of the few female public company CEOs in Japan. 
the only female baseball team owner in Japan and the, the, one of the very few public company CEOs that had grown up where I taught English in this, in this countryside town or area. And from there, I guess it's the first lesson to everyone. You never know how things come full circle. Um, and so I thought I had wasted two years of my life there, but I couldn't be here today without that initial check. And within about, within about four to six weeks after that, uh, she had written a check for almost a million dollars for us and sparked our growth in the gaming company, which eventually was acquired. We left and then we eventually uh, formed Boxed. So you never know. That's great. And so the, you started Boxed with whom? Folks from that company as well? That's right. So it's basically the same. It's getting the, the band back together. So the four key kind of folks from our gaming company uh, uh, were uh, the four co-founders of, uh, of, of Boxed. Okay. So for those folks who don't know what Boxed does, talk to us about your company. Yeah. And it, probably the easiest way to describe it in 2020 terms is we sell toilet paper and disinfectant wipes. Uh, so you can imagine how the, how the year has been for us. Uh, and so um, we initially started as a Costco online. That was basically what we were. I think we've evolved to so much more than that, to just being folks who's kind of go to shop for consumer packaged goods and food online. And so um, we're now in, you know, the lower 48 states, fulfillment centers across the country and hundreds of millions of dollars of sales since, uh, since starting in a garage in Edison seven and a half years ago. Awesome. Awesome. And um, you started in, in 2000, was it 2000? What was the exact year you started? So how old is the company now? We, our first package left the doors September of 2013. That was kind of like a test. Uh, and then our first full quarter in business was basically Q1 of 2014. So right. about seven years now. Uh, and now you're, uh, you know, pretty much one of the next unicorns, right? <laughs> I hope so. You know, it's like, uh, if we can't do it in this environment, there's no chance for us because right. what we sell went from crazy to boring to now like the zeitgeist of, of, uh, of 2020. Oh my God. So, um, well, tell us, you know, about e-commerce in general, right? The, the industry has obviously accelerated, but talk to us from your special viewpoint since you know the industry so well. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you've seen, not, not, I'm not going to assume, but a lot of folks have probably seen the graphs, which shows like, like 10, the last 10 years of, uh, or the last 10 years of e-commerce adoption, you can see this line uh, as e-commerce is a function of retail. And then in like something like six weeks, we had doubled it, you know, so it went like 10 years and six weeks. Um, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. You know, e-commerce is one of those things. It's almost like, I don't know if it's the first time for me, sorry, I'm dating myself. It's the first time you ever use an iPhone. You're like, wow. <laughs> this is pretty cool, you know, um, or the first time you, you drive a, a Tesla, you're just like, man, like, this is not like a gas powered car. This is pretty cool. Um, I think for anyone out there that never tried to, to buy certain categories of e-commerce, generally after you start to do something online, it's rare that you're just like, wow, this really sucks. Um, uh, and let me go back to in-store more than to do it online. So I think the trend will continue and, the, the future has been pulled in quite a bit. Right. So well, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So for Boxed, you guys 
have been doing, you know, a lot better because of the pandemic. But have you changed any of your services or, or product mix or, or things like that to take advantage of it? Yeah, and I don't know how technical this gets for this audience. Um, uh, so apologies if I'm going a little bit too deep. Um, and we were bantering back and forth about this before, uh, Jim and I, um, that um, uh, there's, you know, it's no secret that the world was out of stock on a lot of things during the middle of the, the first wave of the pandemic. Um, and it looks like we're quickly barreling towards that, uh, that kind of situation as well. Um, what happens is that when a manufacturer, I'm making this up, of toilet paper says, um, you know what, I'm going to sell um, uh, this pack, the eight pack to Target, the seven pack to Walmart. Then Costco says, I want the 36 pack. Then Box says, I want the 35 pack. It's just everyone wants their own custom packs and you can only get that pack. Where, uh, where you normally shop, right? And for the manufacturer, it's good too because they don't have, it's not, it, they, to the extent possible, they don't commoditize it. And so it's not just a constant driving of prices and margins to the floor. And so, but it makes things complicated and it slows down the production process. They have to stop it, reload the machine to make a six pack instead of an eight pack, et cetera. So in the middle of the pandemic, what they did was said, you know, we're, we're gonna stop this madness we're going to run the machines 28 hours a day if we can, uh, but they're only going to make three packs. And you get to, as a retailer, you get to pick one of three packs. And so for us, being able to pivot and really carry SKUs we otherwise, or items we otherwise wouldn't carry because maybe they weren't full bulk size packs um, was one of the big changes of box. And, you know, consumers have adopted uh, and adapted to it pretty well. So uh, that might be one of the lasting legacies. Well, wow. and what about um, the extent of, of where you reach? Has that changed at all? Geographically? I would say we, geographically? Yeah, we've definitely see, seen a mix of uh, kind of um, where folks are geographically. So, you know, you might think that we're only coastal and really urban, but, you know, I think the latest read is 50, over 50% of our audience is now suburban or rural. So, um, you know, I recently you know, we did this brand study and it's still ongoing now where, you know, uh, mom in the middle of Ohio, when asked the questions of do your neighbor shop box and she's like, my neighbors are cornfields. And so I don't, I don't interact with them that much, but I imagine they might. Um, so it's definitely branched out there. Demographically it has well as well. So shoppers are at least on our platform are older now. Um, uh, because you know, Either they're just older and they don't want to go out to the store, immunocompromised or whatever the reason is, they're now discovering food and CPG shopping online. Well, explain that. Your initial customer was whom and now who are your customers? Yeah, our initial customer was like, as we call it, just like semi-jokingly, the folks that are adulting for the first time ever. So it's like, maybe you have your dog, your first dog or just bought your first house, just got married, or, you know, just about to have your first child. And you're like, oh my gosh, for the first time ever, I've got to buy in bigger sizes because I have a family now. And I've got a lot of things on my plate. And the last thing on my mind is going to the store to buy essentials when I can get it delivered. Um, so that is one of the, uh, traditionally that was our demographic, but now, uh, you know, we've kind of expanded beyond that. Got it. Someone asked if they can buy your stock. So tell us, you know, uh, about, you know, 
what the vision is for your company. Yeah, I, I you know, um, I feel like um, <laughs> probably the hottest thing of box right now is probably not even the stock is just the wipes. <laughs> so disinfectant wipes, like I feel like, man, if I shot, we're right by 78. Uh, so if I shot like Lysol wipes uh, onto uh, 78 and Garden State Parkway, you'd cause like the, the biggest kind of <laughs> pandemonium ever on the Garden State Parkway, you know, if I had a t-shirt can in the shop, like disinfectant wipes and toilet paper. Um, but uh, right now, unfortunately, Evan, uh, we're not a public company just yet. Uh, and so it's all private, uh, private stock. Um, but if we are a public company in the near future, uh, you know, you can definitely buy our stock and I hope you do. Um, um, and that's probably all I'm legally allowed to say right, in terms right. of forward looking statements with regards to uh, 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 public shares. Exactly. Public and I'll, I'll comment as far as I know. I'll just say if your company wasn't really attractive before, it's gotten much more attractive, you know, as an, as an investment vehicle or an acquisition. You don't have to say anything. I'll just say from my view of the marketplace, it seems like- You said it, not me, Jim. <laughs> Fox is in a, as a, great, as a great leadership, obviously, and is in a great space. So, um, so let's talk about um, other, you know, about e-commerce in general, right? That's changing, everything's accelerating. Five years from now, when we're beyond this, we should hopefully we'll be beyond this in a year. But when we're, when we're not thinking about viruses and we're free to go back and shop, what 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 does um, what does that look like? I think I think that I think a few things. So I think people will return to stores. I don't think retail is dead. I think people actually might yearn to do some of the um, non-critical shops, like you know your discretionary uh, spend back in store. People just want some more entertainment. I, I think, and that's I think I'm not a psychologists at all or, or sociologists like I do feel like that's probably driving some of the behavior of people just you know having pandemic fatigue because they're just like you know what I, I miss going out I miss seeing my friends I miss just walking the mall um, so I think that will return um, I think folks who bought and tried dabbled with buying groceries and food and CPG online will be rather sticky and they will continue to do so because they'll realize that, you know what, I really didn't need to go to that store to do that. And I feel comfortable with it. Uh, and I'm going to stick with it. Or at the very least, um, you know, they'll intersperse online shopping with in-store shop, uh, in-store shopping for groceries and food and CPG, because maybe they were 100% in-store before. Now they've grown comfortable with it. And so at least some of it will, will, will stick around. Great. I so think one of the, oh, I was going to say the other thing that you've seen is that Overall, people's basket sizes are bigger. And I think potentially for all of us, this will be that emotional scarring event that all of us will live with for a long time, where, you know, my parents and my grandparents were always like so frugal and they did this and they did that. Well, it was because they lived in a time, like if you're, you know, at least my grandparents, you lived in a time where it was a great depression and like, yeah, your next meal may be in jeopardy. So you better like, you better turn off the lights when you leave the room, you know? And then where, like, I grew up in a world, like, that was very similar earlier in my life. But, like, as things got better for us and our family and me personally, it became more of, like, you grew up in a time that the economy in general was doing pretty well. Um, so this might be that, that scarring moment where people just stock up, have a little bit more safety stock, because for the rest of their life, they're going to remember when they really needed toilet paper 
and they couldn't pay a hundred bucks for a single roll. Uh, and then you look at the paper towels you have and you're like, Oh gosh, you know, like don't want to go there, you know? And so maybe that's that moment for us as a society. That's interesting. Now, how do you view, there's this big battle between two companies called Amazon and Walmart. How does, how do you view that from your, your special perspective? I mean, I think all of us see it um, as, you know, just a, getting very competitive and positively actually in a lot of ways, as far as the offerings, the ease of shopping, um, lower prices, but I'm curious to see what your perspective is about, um, about that dynamic. It's like, I think um, we've graduated into that ring of like kind of the big companies. Not that we're that big ourselves, but you know, a few hundred million dollars in revenue, that's like, that's nothing to scoff at, right? Like, so we've graduated into that ring. That's the good part. The bad news is that that ring is filled with the largest companies on the face of the earth. Not even the largest retailers, but your Amazon, Walmart is Fortune One. Um, you know, it, it, so there's good and bad of that. Um, and as they duke it out, certainly some of the benefits of adoption are a tailwind for us because part of the battle is just getting someone to buy this stuff online, then they might think about branching out to other services and retailers. Um, I think the, there's also the downside of it is that as they duke it out, then sometimes there's collateral damage as well. Uh, but I think overall it's forced us to make sure we do what we do best and our customers say it best. And when they talk about us, they say, well, uh, one, it's a, Upstart brand, and I love that. I love I love fighting for the smaller guy. Um, uh, two, I like that it's a trusted source. I don't have to think twice about hey, you know, you know, it's it's not Amazon sold and fulfilled by Amazon. Sometimes when you buy Doritos, it's from like John's John's uh, landscaping business, uh, and you're like, is John an authorized reseller of Doritos, <laughs> and why is he selling Doritos that I'm getting? Um, so a lot of folks have, have found us as that trusted source. And then lastly, the way we do things, most of your shipments come in one shipment, ideally in one box. And so that's also been a differentiator. So doubling down on the things that our customers like is what you're going to find us doing uh, right. to combat that. And, and I know many folks probably don't know this, but I know you guys take care of your employees and there, you have several examples of, of how you do that. And I think that's, I think people are, are, very uh, cognizant of that or more cognizant these days when they hear stories about, uh, you know, uh, negative or, or poor cultures or poor safety uh, procedures or operations. So tell us, talk to us a little bit about that because I think that's really special. Yeah. So it's driven by, we were doing it. We were like treating folks well before it became like a cool thing to do. Um, you know, I, I just felt like it's, born from my own personal experience of, you know, when my, my parents, you know, when I was growing up, you know, there was a time many years in our lives where the only income was minimum wage from my mom, you know, and so it's tough, you know, um, not that we pay minimum wage or anywhere close to it. Um, we pay much more than that. Um, but, you know, hourly work, folks on an hourly kind of wage, you know, it, it, it's, it's not the easiest of lives like that. I, I, I could definitely kind of attest to, um, I think, making sure that they're treated with respect uh, and that we take care of as many of their problems as we possibly can 
I think is important. So whether it's free uh, insurance, free health insurance for our W-2 folks around the company, including um, uh, our, 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 our facility team or fulfillment center team, um, or simply a $500 emergency fund that, hey, if you suddenly are presented with a $500 bill, it's difficult to pay you know, for a lot of folks. And so being able to have that as their mini insurance policy um, to bigger things like life-changing benefits like weddings or if you, if you or a loved one gets really sick and you have big time medical bills um, uh, or, or all the way to college tuition, um, we tried to put together a suite of benefits that our folks really like, um, born out of my personal kind of experience. That has since evolved, though, into, I wouldn't say a top three reason why people shop Box, but definitely a top five reason that we are a company that does right by customers as well as our employees and, and people like that. Right. Uh, well, I think that's really special. Um, so talk to us about who you view as a role model as far as uh, other business leaders or entrepreneurs. I think um, individuals, um, you know, I take inspiration from a lot of different sources. Like I try to, the only books I really like to read, unfortunately, is uh, autobiographies. Uh, because when you, when you, when you get to a, when you, when you're running a company with hundreds of people, like I wouldn't say it gets, it's not lonely per se, but it's like you want connection with folks who know what you're going through. Um, and, and I find comfort in reading autobiographies because you get into the psyche of people that have done it. Most, most of these autobiographies are written from folks that have done it and they're on the other side of it now. And so, you know, like, I could really connect to it. Um, so yeah, I, I would say um, I, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought because I'm thinking about all the different inspiration that I draw from. Um, so from an individual level, I draw from a, a ton. Uh, from company level, definitely like folks like Starbucks who do their who, who do right by their employees. Even Costco treats their employees really well. Um, those type of folks who have, you know, they're not charities. They're very profitable companies yet they treat their folks well and still drive profitability and growth. That's what I look to for, for inspiration. Right. Well, tell us what would be one or two autobiographies that you recommend to uh, this audience? Uh, I would say um, um, the Tony Shea one from, from Zappos um, uh, is, is, is quite, uh, quite good. I would say for the folks that are interested in starting their own business, uh, venture funded own business, there's an autobiography by a pretty famous investor and the book is called the hard thing about hard things. Um, and it, um, uh, it's, it's by, um, Andreessen Horowitz is a very famous VC firm. It's by Horowitz, not Andreessen. Um, right, right, right. so, um, it's really interesting because you read it and you're like, wow, I thought I was in a pinch at certain times. That guy, like, he IPO'd with two weeks of cash left in the bank, you know, because there's no other, no other path. And you start to really think about like life and, you know, those are just two of many though. Yeah, no, no, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. In fact, I've met Ben Horowitz and he, he certainly is a special, special person, special entrepreneur. And he really reflects it in books he's written. Um, so, all right. So before we- Some good questions too, I would say. Uh, I know we're so, going to get to that. We're going to get to, to okay. those in a second. Uh, but I want to ask you advice, general advice for 
entrepreneurs now, right? At this time, right? We're in a very difficult place. Not every business is like yours that can scale during a pandemic very effectively. So any general advice for entrepreneurs out there that are, are you know, struggling? Uh, I'll, I'll tie it into one of my favorite books in the end, but really first and foremost is like, you're it, it, like being an entrepreneur is, 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 um, is, is, is being about like being in a marathon. Um, and you're going to have ups and downs. I've never run a marathon, but you know, even just like when I'm on a jog, there's certain times you're like mile two and just like, Oh my gosh, my knee's going to fall off. You know, like, um, you got to keep going. And I think that mental fortitude, um, uh, and that state of mind is really, really important. I will say though, that if you look at business history, there are a lot of very powerful companies that arise when things are most difficult. Um, if that makes sense. Um, and so you look at Uber, um, Tesla had a big moment in like in that last recession. There's a lot of iconic companies that were started in and around the last recession. Um, and so with those choppy waters often comes opportunity. Right, right. And just speaking of recessions, do you see, do you have any forecasting positive, you know, um, vision as far as when do you think things will sort of settle down and, and, and be on an upswing? Um, I, I, I don't, if I, if I did though, Jim, I'd work at the Fed. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just feel like it is just so uncertain at the moment. Um, it's, you know, I just think there's between politics and the election, COVID, you know, technological disruption, man, it's a difficult time to be an entrepreneur, but actually it's an exciting time to be an entrepreneur. And I say that knowing that, you know, folks can totally roll their eyes at that saying that we're in a very special position. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I also think that even if I weren't starting box, I would think of starting something at this moment because there's so much there, like, you know, blockchain, like e-commerce, like, you know, like distance learning, just like the whole world is changing. And the reality is as an entrepreneur, you're a lot like a, like a, 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 a trader. Um, and in the way that if there's no volatility, you're not making any money, you know, um, you can, you can go on the upswing, downswing, you can make money. But if there's, if that stock ticker, if that stock is steady, you make, no one's making any money, you know? Uh, and so right now as an entrepreneur, the world is like that. And so you just have to find your angle. Um, and I think, I think you could be very successful. Yeah, I totally agree. So before we get to questions, we have a bunch here. Share with us just one thing, uh, you know, one takeaway from this conversation. Um, I was alluding to it a little bit before is that the one thing I hope you take away from this for, for the folks that are listening is that um, uh, being an entrepreneur and running the entrepreneurial race uh, is a marathon vastly populated by sprinters. And so you're going to, at times when you're running this marathon, feel like, oh my gosh, that person's getting so ahead or that company's getting so ahead. This is a marathon. And I'm telling you, the vast majority of people at that starting line are sprinters. They want the glory of being an entrepreneur. They have this next great idea. They're go, go, go when the gun starts. Um, uh, but man, it is an entrepreneurial journey. 
when you think about the folks that are very successful, anyone on this call today, think about the most successful entrepreneurs that you know, they were probably a 10 year overnight success. Um, I'm sure folks who had not, have not heard about Fox uh, um, will turn around and say, oh my gosh, they're an overnight success. The, the pandemic hit and you know, everyone's ordering from Box. It's like, well, we've been around for seven plus years of hard work. Um, and so just remember that is that, you know, you're, there's always going to be someone that's running faster at that moment, but keep your pace and, and uh, realize it's a marathon. I think that's a great reminder, right? We always see all these very celebrity, you know, these celebrity entrepreneurs, and they, we think it just happened just like that, right? But the ability to focus and persist and to have endurance, right, is really a critical skill set. So let's get to the questions. Um, let's see. Um, this one's not COVID related, but as your revenue increased, how did you evaluate increase, increasing your personal salary um, and leadership, you know, team uh, management team salaries, or did you just reinvest the profits uh, back into growing the business? I took a salary cut. Uh, and so we incurred um, uh, um, a lot of additional expenses, as you can imagine, from COVID. Um, so between the, 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 you know, 3x amount of um, uh, kind of cleaners and janitors we've had to hire from de- having mandatory downtimes in the facility so we can properly clean. And so no one is interacting with each other in the parking lot. So one shift can totally go home before the next shift comes on board. Um, there have been some, some cost headwinds for us that, you know, um, I think it's right for me to take a, a pay cut. So, um, but overall, you know, as a growth business, you're basically investing any profits right back into the business. Um, it's just the way of high growth technology companies. Uh, there's very few that are highly profitable and the ones that are highly profitable, I would imagine uh, are, are reinvesting of the vast majority of their profits. Right. So someone asked, do you find it difficult to balance your work life and personal life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I vacillate back and forth uh, uh, on this um, because sometimes I feel like there are hard lines you can draw. Other times I'm like, no, it just melts into one. Um, you know, and I, I'm more of the camp of like it melds into one. Um, so it's like, it's like a really deep Venn diagram, uh, where there's a lot of kind of that overlap, but there are fringe things where it's like, this is just totally work or this is just totally, Hey, there's, there's still certain cutoffs that don't fall perfectly within that Venn diagram. I think it's probably how I, de- I would describe it. Um, there's hours where I physically, like I will put a block on my calendar that just says, you know, every day, this is my time to spend time with family, spend time to think, you know, and I actually schedule that time. Um, and because if you don't, then the Venn diagram becomes just one giant circle. And related to that, how do you unwind and relax? Is there any special thing you do or is it just spending time with family? Um, I would say schedule wise, I've definitely evolved as a first time from my first time being an entrepreneur to now is that, I don't lose any sleep. I've read, I could count on probably two hands sleepless nights that I've had in the seven years running box as stressful as it's been, because I've learned that thinking about it and make letting it get in your mind so that you end up having no rest or a very terrible night's rest is a compounding uh, uh, kind of thing that, that will make, that will affect the company in a very bad way. You know, you're not going to think about the, 
the way to solve your problems at 2.30 a.m. Lying, lying wide awake in your bed, it, like after you, you've had like a full day, dude, your brain is barely working at that moment. Have a great night's rest. Wake up early. Get at it with a fresh brain is how I've evolved. On, on, also, I've, I've learned to try to avoid weekend calls as much as possible. I used to be like seven-day work week. Um, and I'll probably sneak in at least one or two calls on the weekend. But to the extent I can, I really try to recharge on the weekends. Um, so those are the two tips. Um, I've also learned that I become very boring and I don't have hobbies anymore. Uh, and so I recently went back into, I, I like overtly said, you know what? I should have a hobby again. I went into a comic book store in Jersey and like, it's kind of like, oh man, should I be going to a comic book store at my age? Uh, and I walk in, luckily there was someone also around my age and I, you know, looked at him and he looked at me and I was like, yeah, I belong here. And so I picked up a, a fat stack of, uh, Star Wars comics. So nice. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Nice. All right. So uh, Esther Sardin, who I think you've probably met in the past from New Jersey Tech Weekly, is asking, are you in New Jersey right now? Because you're head, you, I think you have a headquarters in New York. Um, but everyone knows you started your company in New Jersey. So she just wants a little more elaboration on, you know, where are you these days? I'm physically in New Jersey. Um, so I am at the corner of 78 and the Garden State Parkway. Uh, in Union. So Esther, you probably, you probably drive around the facility. I think it's, if you live in New Jersey, you almost have to have kind of past this intersection at some point in time. So uh, that's where I physically am right now. Got it. Um, and I've been in that building. That is very impressive. All these robots all over the place and humans, right? And humans and humans. Um, yeah. It's, it's every time I show up to work, I still like, I mean, that's, this was in a garage as late as six years ago. So it's like, you know, so I'm still like kid in a candy store when I walk into these buildings. Someone is really happy about your comic, uh, your comic obsession. Oh um, man. It's so the funny. third episode of Mandalorian comes out tonight. So, or it's out already. So I'm looking forward to that. That's, that's as wild as my Friday nights get these days. I've heard great things about that. Um, let me ask you this. Um, you know, speaking about robots, right? We just heard uh, from Walmart saying that they're going to not use as many robots for something and then use humans for, for these things. Can you speak to sort of, you know, that dilemma and that um, situation uh, as someone who uses robots in your facilities? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think there is a very fine line between what's a toy and what is ready for mass consumption and it's actually useful outside of its usefulness of just being cool. Um, I think, um, for example, most of, the, most of the robotic arms out there these days, they're still toys. Like the dexterity of a human hand and how you can say, I'm picking up this cup like this and I'm gonna put it down at the speed in which I put that down. And I'm gonna pick up the water bottle right next to it like that. That speed and that dexterity doesn't exist today. Does not. You know, you see it like it's like the clumsy hands are. That's going to change over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, at least right now, when it comes to anything with, that needs the dexterity of a human hand, the vision, the computational uh, uh, methods, as well as the computational power, as well as the then physical dexterity, um, there hasn't been that three way match just yet. Um, and so I think it's going to change. But right now, it hasn't. So, you know, um, some things are just better 
done by humans. Um, but we have to keep up because that world, if you just keep, keep drawing this path, that, you know, these things are going to tip one by one, right? It's almost like simulation theory. It's like, if you think the line goes like that, at some point in time, we're going to get to a fully humanized droid that goes around and does what me and you do all day. So, so how, how are we going to adapt in terms of what humans do? So, um, but right now we're far from that. Got it. Uh, someone is asking about internships. Oh yeah, we do have interns. We've had interns in the past. Um, unfortunately, generally we only do interns from graduate school. We'll take a few undergrad interns. Um, we've also had a ton of folks applying from high school. When it gets to high school, it's a little bit too early for us. College is even a bit too early for us. And so we generally take grad school interns. It's kind of the rule of thumb. Got it. Okay. Here's a question. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. How do companies maintain the uniqueness of their brands versus being commoditized by depending on e-commerce aggregators like you, Amazon and Walmart, uh, and just depend on price to be the ultimate differentiator? I think it's really difficult, right? Because if you think about something like the Honest Company, I'm going to make this up. They were anti-store. It was their own channel. They built a really unique brand. But only right now what you're seeing is that if you're not on these aggregator sites or if you're not on a marketplace, it's hard to scale. Or if you're not in store, it's harder to scale. Um, and so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you have to accept the fact that at some point in time, you probably have to sell in all these different channels. Um, but how do you do so without selling your soul, I think is the question you have to ask yourself. And so that is making sure between the branding, how you treat your customers post-purchase, um, and the messaging um, outside of the channels, I think is really important to maintain your soul as a brand. Um, because I don't think it's bearing your head in the sand and just saying, you know what, I'm only gonna sell via my channel. There's not many companies that have been successful at that. Like, um, you could be successful, don't get me wrong. Like, I just can't name many, many of them. Right. And I think Honest Company also has a celebrity uh, endorser like Jessica Alba and combined with Brian Lee, who I think you probably know is sort of a, a mastermind genius business guy. Yeah. Um, that yeah, helps. Exactly. <laughs> that certainly helps if you're Jessica Alba, right? It's like, yeah, you're already a brand. So, right. um, yeah. Got it. All right. So let me just check here. Um, what is your selection process for choosing brands to sell through Boxed? Um, that has evolved over time as well. Right now, uh, in the beginning, it was me. I picked the first 300 SKUs. You know, that's why I don't lead the buying department anymore. So, uh, uh, but now um, for things that we carry first party, so for the things that we actually buy and take physical inventory of and also sell, it's a pretty rigorous selection process where of course we run through the normal stuff of trying the samples, understanding the story of the item and the brand. Um, the data then comes in of like, is this a category that's doing well uh, for us as well as kind of uh, potentially out in general in the market. And then lastly, the buyers uh, have to defend to the other buyers why they're onboarding a new product. Is it because the older product is going out of fashion or out of style? Is it because this item provides better economics for the company? Is it just, is it a white space area where we have a high quality entrant in that category, but no medium tier quality entry. So there's a bunch of reasons, but they have to then defend it. Um, but the road starts first with getting in touch with one of our buyers, either through the website 
uh, into the general uh, uh, kind of inbox or reaching out to them uh, via LinkedIn and getting their attention. Right. So uh, speaking of your mix, is there any real big failure or real big surprise a success um, from those first 300? Yeah. Um, uh, fruit snacks is in our system. It's still like, I think item number like less than 10. Uh, and it's funny because that fruit snack has been carried out now seven plus years. And so, because now item numbers in our system are like, you know, like four or five digits, you know, because we've tried so much over the years. But it's refreshing to see some of those items that are still like item three is still on sale. They're like, ha ha. You know, uh, even a broken clock is right two times a day. So, um, so some of those items are still there. Um, Mistake-wise, you're always going to make bad buys uh, as a buyer. So I'm, you know, it's like it's just a part of life. So luckily, we haven't made such a big mistake that it's tanked the company, which is, you know, a real possibility early on if you're carrying inventory. Right, right. Okay, so here's a question. How have you managed to keep up with the larger companies like the Walmart, Amazon, Costco's of the world? Don't they have the ability to, to have considerably lower prices? Yeah, so you have to stay true to who you are and what your message is. And so surveying customers like we, like we have recently done and understanding why they shop with us, you find that there is a niche uh, for folks who don't want to shop with the other big platforms. Um, and so that, that's very important for us. Uh, the technical reason of why we can offer pretty compelling prices on a unit level uh, or on the item level against those folks is that on average, we ship about 10 items per order. And so if you think about the biggest cost of e-commerce, of course, it's the item itself, but really it's that cost to ship it to you. Um, and so what you find is that if I'm going to ship this bottle of water, I'm just making this up. If this costs $5 to ship, if I ship 10 of these, it doesn't cost $50. So the cost of shipping doesn't straight line. Um, and so as it asymptotes towards a pre-negotiated price, um, every item past your third, fourth, fifth, sixth item, it's really great because you could start to, the item rides along with the other items. And so your incremental shipping price for each additional item is very small. And so while Amazon and Walmart are shipping each is shipping one item orders, they have to pay that full freight every time, that full entry price every time, right? Um, they're shipping an item to you. But if you buy 10 items at a time, um, every incremental one doesn't have that big entry price anymore. And so the overall price of every item is, is kind of divided out amongst all the different items. Got it. Now what what uh, shipper do you use or do you use several? We have to use several now. So, um, it's not boy who cried wolf for everyone here that expects to gift anything to anyone this season. You better buy early. I'm not kidding you. Like there's, that's a real challenge. Like I'm And here's my proof in this. Um, every year for the past, what, four or five years, there's that, there's that article on CNN or Fox or whatever you, you read that says, you know, thousands of kids disappointed because their UPS or FedEx package showed up late because you know, it's peak season. There's too many boxes going up this year. Every year, I, like I bet if you can go back the last five years, every year there's that article. That's normal peak season, right? We're already in a peak season because of COVID and how much people shop online. So we're already having packages delayed. Like God help us all when holiday season really hits, double peak, forget about it. Like 
you're going to like, it's going to be, you're going to wait for your package for some time. Um, so I, I, and I, I'm just saying that as an optimist even, you know, and so um, order early. So, um, and we've had to diversify carriers uh, to make sure we have the coverage we need. So um, someone asked about uh, shipping to Hawaii and Alaska. Do you think you'll ever ship there? We do for some business clients. Hawaii and Alaska are, are, are a bit tougher because you have to set up physical operations there to really service it well and in an economic way. And so um, um, we have a lot of volunteers to set up operations in Hawaii. We haven't, the, the box for, you know, Alaska volunteers is right now empty. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but overall though, you know, it's something I think at, at some point in time we'll have to tackle. Do you use the USPS? Um, to a certain extent, but not as much as other companies because, uh, you know, think about 10 items per box, mostly bulk. It's a big box. And think about the, the van that delivered or the little truck that delivered your last, your mail. Um, you, you put six box boxes in there. There's no room for mail. So, you know, it's a, it's a challenge for them to handle boxes of our size. But if, as far as the holiday rush, do you guys get affected by in the increased demand? I mean, your products generally don't fit the gifting, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, sort of. Um, this year, I hope to change that because, you know, if you were able to send someone eight canisters of Lysol wipes, like that is gold. Uh, and so it's, it's you know, um, but joking aside, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. So you're not, you know, like Cyber Monday, you're generally not looking for CPG, but we see a good rise in sales as well. Um, but it's usually when, that's, when, the, when schools are back in session, like whenever, you know, I'd like to say when people come back down to earth and like holidays are done, like families out the door and they're like, man, life has returned to normal. That's when people are like, oh yeah, pantry load. You know, that's right. when we see the rise. All right, this is going to be our last question, Shay. Um, do you plan on going international one day? Uh, potentially very soon. So fingers crossed, uh, you'll hear, you may or may not hear about something uh, in the very near future about that. Great. Well, Shay, this has been really fantastic. You have an amazing story and, and we're just lucky to have you, uh, you know, locally here, uh, you know, uh, growing in such a, a great business. So leave us with a, a poem or an excerpt and then we'll get on to our weekend. Yeah, I, uh, um, sorry, I'm not a big poetry guy. Uh, and so when Jim asked me, I actually pulled one of my favorite lines. I know I said I read a lot of autobiographies, but sometimes I read obscure books as well. So there is a book um, that you can buy. It's actually not classified. It's uh, FM, which stands for Field Manual, 21-76. Uh, uh, so what a great title, right? It's the Ar U.S. Army Survival Manual. So it's like, if you're shot down over enemy territory, how do you survive the next two weeks until the cavalry comes? This is, this is the physical manual you're supposed to study uh, as, as a part of the armed forces. Um, and the reason I love it is because one of the first things they teach you is this exact quote. A key ingredient in any survival situation is the mental attitude of the individual involved. Having survival skills is important having the will to survive is essential. Um, and I really think as an entrepreneur, going through the ups and downs, you can be a very talented 
entrepreneur, if you don't have the will to survive or to run that marathon, um, then you're not going to make it. Uh, and so I, I find great inspiration from that quote. Um, Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.